Hello and welcome to Sustain, a podcast hosted by Na'ara Fetu, the Centre for Climate, Biodiversity and Society. I'm Pauline Herbst. So I was in Guatemala on August 20th of this year when the runoff election happened, and it was an absolutely wild election night. Bernardo Arevalo, who was the runoff candidate for a political party known as Movimiento Semilla, or Movement of the Seed, won the runoff by over a million votes. It was also one of the most alive political nights because I've, I've, I've been in Guatemala for a number of elections since 2008. The history that you, you find in the books, they say that Mayans had their civilizations and then they disappeared. But what happened from our point of view is that the Mayan civilization is still alive. Uh, we are in our communities. The thing is that uh, with the Spanish conquest, they were murdered, uh, the, the leaders. And that's why most of the, the Mayan leaders stopped being leaders. They hide themselves sometimes. And that's why that right now we are still alive. We are still in our communities, but most of us are not going to risk their lives as it happened in the past. Today we're talking with education specialist Freddie Osham and anthropologist Kelly van der Weel about biodiversity hotspot Guatemala. Biodiversity underpins all life on Earth, and hotspots like Guatemala contain species and habitats that you are not going to find anywhere else. Guatemala is also one of the most dangerous countries in the world for land and environmental activists, with a history of indigenous genocide linked to colonial land grabs, the Cold War, and deadly coups. And right now, a silent, peaceful, indigenous-led protest is trying to ensure their democratically elected candidate is sworn in as president. Why should this matter to you on the other side of the planet? Apart from the coffee and bananas in your kitchen, corruption and impunity can create conditions for extractive industries like mining, palm oil and hydroelectricity to thrive, affecting us all. But first, some background on Mayan culture and the value of Indigenous-led education. I'd like to welcome Freddie Osham, a Maya Kekchi community leader in education in the Alta Verapaz, and the advisor to the Vice Minister of Bilingual and Intercultural Education at the Ministry of Education in Guatemala. Freddie, welcome. It is so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me to be here. It's a pleasure. You started out founding a school when you were quite young, from what I understand. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? When I was in primary school, after finish grade six, I wanted to go to school, but in my area, there wasn't any school. So I suffered to get secondary education. So uh, when I finished uh, university, the first thing that I had in my mind is that I should do something about it. And what I wanted to do is to found the school so that kids from my community will not suffer this problem. So that's why I started the Kamolbem Maya Community School, which is a school that gives education like from grade 7 to grade 12 for indigenous communities. That's an incredible piece of work to be doing, giving back to your country like that. Do you want to tell me a little bit about indigenous-led education and what that looks like? Usually... Uh, when we think about education uh, in general in, in Guatemala, usually it's done in Spanish. But from our point of view, from a community indigenous point of view, usually we are not having the appropriate education. 
So what we are proposing is that indigenous communities should have in their own native language. Like as a first language would be in my case in Kekchi and the second language in Spanish. And um, basically communities, we have our own beliefs and traditional knowledge and uh, this should be taught at schools. So that's why we propose education from this view so that not only that, but of course we value as well Spanish cultures and as well as the language, but we would like that our education would be in both language and cultures. Now you mentioned indigenous people and indigenous knowledge and indigenous languages. Do you want to talk us through a little bit of the face of that, unpacking that a little bit within Guatemala? I mean, I understand you've got something like 25 just Mayan languages as a start, something around that number? Yes, there are 22 Mayan languages. Uh, there is a one Garifuna, which is a mixed race, mm-hmm. uh, as well as Chink. It's another indigenous group of people. But at the end, we are 25 languages in Guatemala. And of course, this is like the majority of the population. And in Guatemala, as you know, more than 25 languages. And it means that it's a challenge for our education. For me, I work at the Ministry of Education. When I look at it, we need to have at least textbooks in all of these languages. So we are promoting textbooks, teachers that uh, would speak the language. So this is still a challenge for the country to give education in these languages. And why is it so important to have the indigenous languages, the first language being taught? It's important because when you start education in your own language, in your own cultures, it's always faster to learn. If you, for instance, for me, when I, I, I studied I had the opportunity to study in Canada for high school and uh, I got there and uh, the education was in English and I didn't understand anything like for five months. But at the end, when I learned that language, it was so much easier. It happens the same to the kids when they start an education in Spanish, a language that is not theirs. And they start learning about stuff, about other cultures and they, they can't relate to it. So if you start an education in your own language, in your own culture, they are learning a lot more faster. They're learning their own language. It's more easier to jump from their culture to the next culture. And you mentioned as well as the language that it's important that those sort of indigenous beliefs and traditional knowledge is being taught through the schooling systems as well. Could you give us a description or or talk us through some of those beliefs and traditional knowledge practices? Practices for Maya cultures, uh, we believe that there is not only one God, mm-hmm. but uh, there are gods for everything. For instance, a God for the water, a God for the plants, a God for the corn, for instance, which is really important in our rituals. And we practice uh, Maya ceremonies. We have our own calendar. So basically, you can do anything uh, you can calculate from the Maya calendar, the day of your birth, you can basically see uh, what are the characteristics of this person. How would your life be in the future? So what can you be in the future, for instance? So basically you can have uh, this 
meaning in your life. So I believe that Mayan people, uh, we have uh, this point of view, for instance, that everything is valued and everything is alive, even though when you think about it, for instance, a tree, a rock, it's alive. We believe that in our culture because we respect them and uh, we are in harmony with uh, the nature, with everything around us. And this is something that is not thought otherwise if, if it wasn't from the culture. I'm interested in what you said around there's a God for water or for plants or for corn. So if those rituals aren't adhered to, for example, around water, what would then happen? It was this year that our community was suffering because it's, it wasn't rain. It was around June and it was really hot. Uh, usually we get our water from the rivers, from the nature. And if we don't do ceremony, sometimes it doesn't rain. And it happened this uh, year, actually, that there were no rain for three months. And the community organized a Mayan ceremony to ask Sulta'a. Sulta'a is the god. And after, not long after the ceremony, the Mayan ceremony, it rained. So from what I see is that it worked when, when we believe in, in gods and um, we do our ceremonies and there was water. So actually now it's been raining like for four weeks without stopping. And I believe that people are happy because there are rains and the rains is life because it's the water. We get our, our water from the rivers, from the trees and and that's why that uh, we do this practice. So then if a company was wanting to put in something like a dam or do something that could potentially disrupt a natural water flow, is there something that needs to be done? Are communities supposed to be consulted? Um, are there particular things that should happen? Yes, of course. In our country, uh, usually our traditional communities, is sometimes that the lands, for instance, it's communal and usually you can't uh, do anything if the community is not agreeing on certain topics everything that we do in our community is consulted with the people and if the people doesn't agree you you can't do anything and this is this is of course uh, one of our values in in our community thanks freddie you're listening to Sustain, a podcast hosted by Na'arafetu, the Centre for Climate, Biodiversity and Society. I'm Pauline Herbst, and we've been speaking with Maya Kekchi, Community Leader in Education, Freddie Usham, for the first segment of the show. For more information about the work Indigenous leaders are doing in Guatemala around protecting important natural resources, please check the show notes on Na'arafetu's public interest media, thebigq.org. For the next segment, we're going to focus on the current political situation in Guatemala with anthropologist Kelly van der Weel. Kelly, you've been doing fieldwork in Guatemala for over 15 years on and off. Do you want to give us a brief intro to your current research project? So I've been working in Guatemala since 2008. My PhD and most recent research has been cooperative anthropology with three community weaving cooperatives in the Alta Vedapaz of Guatemala, looking at relationships between communities, museum objects, digital repatriation, and the recovery of lost heritage knowledge. So why is an indigenous-led peaceful protest happening right now in Guatemala, the best thing for biodiversity? And more specifically, 
How did you even find out about the current peaceful protest? There's not much happening online around this. I was there doing a presentation of a community exhibition we'd done at the University of Archaeology and Anthropology at Cambridge with some museum objects. And I can talk about that to anybody who wants to later in great detail that had been created for that museum by some of the weavers that I've worked with for the last 10 years. And it was an absolutely wild election night. Bernardo Arevalo, who was the runoff candidate for a political party known as Movimiento Semilla, or Movement of the Seed, won the runoff by over a million votes. It was also one of the most almost alive political nights, because I've, I've, I've been in Guatemala for a number of elections since 2008, and there were people partying after this election until sort of three or four o'clock in the morning. Well, wow. And it's interesting because Movimiento Semilla, the political party of Bernardo Arevalo, was pretty much unknown in April of 2023 when the election started rolling. They were the second least popular party, and they came out of nowhere to force a runoff election. And Arevalo is the son of Juan Jose Arevalo, who was the president who took um, office in Guatemala in 1944 after Guatemala's first democratic election after a major revolution in the 1940s. That's right. Well, before we go into that, yeah. I just wanted to find out from you, why is this political party called Movements of the Seed? What are they trying to accomplish? They're trying to accomplish a shift in Guatemalan politics towards a more democratic form. The Movement of the Seed is the idea that a good idea or a good change starts slowly and grows as you nurture it. And Arevalo is a sociologist. His father was a professor before he got involved in politics. And the symbolism of the son of one of Guatemala's most well-known revolutionary leaders coming back and leading this political party is really significant in this particular space, in this particular time. That's right. You were saying it's quite a significant moment, that this is a public sense that they're just, Guatemala is done with corruption. That's the sense that I got when I was in Guatemala in August. In the early 1940s, Guatemala had a political uprising that was mostly indigenous leaders, trade union leaders, and educators. And they overthrew a government that was widely viewed as not democratic and instituted what was then known as Guatemala's 10 years of democratic spring. This was a period of time in Guatemala's history when people felt like their government represented them for the first time. Was this the October Revolution? The October Revolution in 1944. This particular election in August of 2023 is being called Guatemala's second chance at spring. So people are really tying this election and this possible change in government coming up on January 14th of 2024 is when Arevalo might be sworn into office as Guatemala's second chance at having kind of a democratic period or even a new democratic spring kind of moving into a democratic future people in Guatemala link these two periods of time together. And they're both kind of coming after long periods of colonial violence rooted in land grabs, long periods of environmental degradation, particularly looking at the extraction of resources to be sent to the global north, and long periods during which Guatemala's indigenous people, and it's a hugely diverse nation, there's 24 to 25 Maya languages, depending on how you define the subdialects, Xinka people, Garifuna people. So both of these quote-unquote revolutions are coming after a period when Guatemala's indigenous peoples have felt very iced out of the political process and faced significant violence when advocating for their own space in the political sphere. It's interesting to me that Arevalo, the senior, was um, seen as a young visionary school teacher and that he included a whole lot of new reforms like social security, trade union rights, a 40-hour work week, and a modern tax on large landowners. And that's something I'd like to go into now. 
United Fruit, what's the deal with that in the Cold War? There's a, a fantastic book by Stephen Kinzer called Overthrow, if you want a quick overview of this, that does different chapters on U.S.-led coups across Central America and the world. The Dole brothers were involved in the U.S. government and also the Dole Fruit Company. And one of the things that Arevalo, the senior, did, and actually Jacobo Arbenz, who came after him, who was the second democratically elected president, instituted a land reform that looked at unused arable land across Guatemala, particularly in the Boca Costa region, which is down by the coast. And his aim was actually to give communities who had long been disenfranchised in land rights access to arable land that they could use in farming and in sustenance. And one of the ways that he wanted to get this land was to buy land back from large, mostly U.S.-based companies, but also some European companies, and then give it to communities who, if they could use it and make a business out of it or a living off of it, they could keep that land and hold it in community trust. That's right. And wasn't it that the value that the landowners had actually put when they offered them that money back, they said, nobody takes those land valuations seriously. We refuse. Yeah, they not only said that, they said, nobody takes the land valuation seriously. And this was led by Dole Fruit Company. They said, this is the real value of the land. And Arbenz's government at this point said, that's fine. We'll pay you the real value of the land. What's uh -huh. important to us is getting these land rights back to communities. And that push back against the the sort of major U.S. companies, and I think particularly against that idea of land holding, led United Fruit to lobby hard to the U.S. Secretary of State to push for an overthrow in Guatemala's government and to kind of align Guatemala with the Soviet Union in this almost made up political triangle to push for a regime change in Guatemala. The idea being that all of these social reforms that Arevalo had overseen and these new land reforms that Arbenz was overseeing were communist. communist, yeah. So just for clarity, in the previous regime, um, United Fruits had things like a 99-year lease, they had exemption from taxes, they had the most choice, choice of land. And what was happening now is, as we said, there were some union rights, 48-hour work week. And the land that was being bought back from United Fruit, and this is a kind of a really important piece of history that often gets forgotten, was not the land that was being used. So they weren't being asked to sell back all of the land that they had in Guatemala. They were only being asked to sell back the land that they held in land banking and that they weren't currently using. So it was the sense that if they were actively farming land, they still had all of those previous rights to that land and the, the ability that they'd had to continue growing and farming on that land that they would had before. So nobody was actually cutting into any part of their business interests except for the sort of extractative land banking, insuring themselves against the future by hanging on to land. So what happened next? So this is in 1943, 1944, and there was what's called Guatemala's Democratic Spring or a semi-peaceful revolution that occurred over the course of kind of September and October of 1944. I think it was Ubico was the president at that point in time, was overthrown by a, like a soft military coup. And there was a series of elections in which Juan Jose Arevalo won the presidency in 1944. And that was sort of the start of Guatemala's democratic spring. I'd like to welcome Freddy Osham, a Maya Kekchi community leader in education in the Alta Verapaz. So with the number of um, languages and, and Mayan groups that you have, is there some way that you all organize together? So for example, from the education perspective, um, you have the, this indigenous-led education. Do you have kind of an umbrella organization that helps to organize and, and decide what's going to happen in the curriculum or in each area? How do you do all of that? I believe that uh, most indigenous community 
are always looking for ways to, to get a better life, better understanding of the society, and uh, to get basis for uh, social participation, uh, political participation. And of course, our education is always something that we want to be better every day. And there are a lot of organizations, Mayan organizations, that are always fighting for our rights, access to education, to health. And um, of course, organizations, there are that many of them. Sometimes it's difficult because we are at disadvantage because some of us don't get to go to school. And that's why it's difficult to get a space in the government, for instance, it's always a difficulty. So that's why uh, we try to found our own organization, mm -hmm. community organizations. But at the end, we always need to get the government to do something uh, and not only for our own efforts, but we need always need some external help in order to, to do something bigger in, in our community. The Mayan community is, or the indigenous community in Guatemala, is that around 60% of the population, roughly? It is. Of course, this is one of our concerns because we are a really big population. But for making decisions, sometimes we're not in those spaces. So we need to do a little bit more. We need to, to be in, in, on those spaces. But I guess it's, it's one of our fights. What we're doing is to be there educate ourselves, get education, and try to be in decisive places. Just getting back to what you were saying around sort of water being so important for crops and, and for drinking. So do the indigenous communities live mainly in rural areas and tend to, to use water from the environment and grow crops and things like that? Or is it sort of more of a mixed urban rural setup? The majority are living in rural areas. Mm -hmm. There are some of us that are living in the city. Mostly we are in the city for job opportunities because in our communities, uh, living in a community means work on the crops, for instance. And um, our communities are not developed enough to have uh, professionals working in, in the community. But at some point, we, we come back. I myself had the opportunity to study, to get an education, but I come back, I always come back to help my community. I, I want my community to get developed. I would like to see my community to get really great education. I would like to see my community to have a really good health system. This is one of my, my, my goals myself, to give back to my community. And that's why I, I started with this uh, project to fund the school so that uh, we're getting really good uh, start way of development and uh, that's the core. So in those schools, do you include uh, sort of studying the local environment at all or is that something that's more done at a community level in terms of, is that a formal process or an informal process in Guatemala or does it not really happen much? Uh, it does happen. From the curriculum, we have... The language courses, of course, includes Kekchi. We have uh, the natural sciences. It includes traditional knowledge of the community. But also, we give community participation. Uh, we have a space for the elders so that they can come and talk to the students about uh, medicinal plants, about ceremonies, Mayan ceremonies, about the calendars and traditional knowledge that sometimes 
the youth doesn't know. For instance, uh, what can you plant during a full moon or stuff like this? I mean, we have a space to share with the elders. This is not something that we do from the curriculum, but we have this community participation that comes to complete a study program in the school. So this is something that uh, we try to do in order that the, the, the children get like the whole uh, knowledge uh, about their own communities. Could you give us just a, a little bit about the history of Mayan culture in Guatemala? It's sometimes difficult to understand because the history that you, you find in the books, uh, they say that Mayans had their civilizations and then they disappeared. But what happened from our point of view is that the Mayan civilization is still alive. Uh, we are in our communities. The thing is that uh, with the Spanish conquest, they were murdered, uh, the, the leaders. And that's why most of the, the Mayan leaders stopped being leaders. They hide themselves sometimes. And that's why that right now we are still alive. We are still in our communities, but most of us are not going to risk their lives as it happened in the past. So we believe that it didn't disappear as most of the books say. If you read history books about the Mayans, it says that there were three stages when the Mayan developed their culture. And then there was like a time in which Mayans had their own communities, their own cities, their own temples, and then they disappeared. But for us, it's a different history because we believe that they didn't disappear, but they are still alive. We are still here. But what happened is that some of them got uh, afraid and they didn't want to talk anymore. They didn't want to live anymore because they didn't want to risk their lives. And that was happening like over centuries. And that's why that as of now, you see most of us are not uh, leaders anymore. You see, we believe that <laughs> there is a story behind it. Why? Uh, Mayans don't have developed uh, cities. A lot of the time, indigenous people are linked with this kind of trope of being one with nature. For many reasons, that can be beneficial, and for other reasons, it cannot be beneficial. So I wanted to get from your perspective as an educator, what you think the link between indigenous peoples and nature should be or is or is continuing to be? The link between natures and population should always be respect. For us, the Kekchis, we respect the nature. We live with the nature and um, I, I believe that we protect it. And um, our main uh, nature, our main life, our main communities is within the nature. If you see it from a different point of view as well, you see that we get our healthy lives from it. As if you go the air, the, the water, sometimes we use the trees as well for construction. So when it happens, what we do is usually ask permission to God when we're cutting a tree, uh, we do our rituals to ask for permission. We do Mayan ceremonies, uh, we give uh, back our ofrendas. I don't know if there is a word in, in Spanish mm -hmm. um, to say ofrendas, but it's like you give back to the, the God so that uh, the God will give you permission to use the trees. So that's what we do. And we believe that it's a way of 
paying our respect to the nature. We're not only cutting the trees, but we are asking for permission. And that's why we, we believe that we are respecting each other. Do you have any final thoughts or anything that you think is important that we should be mentioning? The Mayans are always thinking about uh, development. Our, our culture uh, used to be very, very rich culture. Uh, used to have, well, well, we still have it, our own system. Uh, there are a lot of potentials within the Mayan communities, uh, with the Mayan kids. There are potentials to develop our communities, our country. But sometimes it's difficult when you live like isolated, uh, when there are a few opportunities. And of course, when we get an opportunity, we take seriously and, and we, we are always helping each other. One of our, our values in our communities is to help each other. And for instance, when we have a community work, when we have a siembra, when we have a crop plantings, for instance, we invite our neighbors to help us to plant our seeds. And when the next family does it, it's always the same. They invite us to go there and, and mutual work. It's one of our practice. And I believe that there are a lot of potentials. We just need to develop a little bit more, maybe write it down, maybe teach it to the kids. But we know that we do it sometimes. We don't write it down. But I, I guess uh, one of our potential is to write. And this is something that can be done from, from schools. Well, Freddie, thank you so much for joining us here today. This has been absolutely um, a privilege to speak to you. And yeah, we'll carry on now with the rest of the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. So you're listening to Sustain, a podcast hosted by Na'ara Fetu, the Centre for Climate, Biodiversity and Society. We've been speaking with Maya Kekchi, Community Leader in Education, Freddie Osham, for the first segment of the show. And for more information about the work Indigenous leaders are doing in Guatemala around protecting important natural resources, please check the show notes on Na'ara Fetu's public interest media, thebigq.org. For the next segment, we're going to focus on the current political situation in Guatemala with anthropologist Kelly van der Weel. Kelly, I was just thinking around what Freddie was saying around how the Mayan civilization hasn't disappeared. They're still there, which was incredibly poignant because it also made me think of something else that I read around a number of people that were, they say, disappeared. But that was actually during the coup. And it was a mass genocide of Mayan indigenous people in Guatemala. After the period of Democratic Spring from 1944 to 1955, there was a U.S.-engineered coup in 55 and 56, after which, in 1963, a trade union and indigenous community-led resistance started that lasted for over 30 years. And this mm -hmm. was Guatemala's 36-year-long civil war, during which 250,000 indigenous people were disappeared or killed. And this was particularly difficult between 1980 and 1982. It's notable that the U.S., particularly around the interests of U.S. corporations and U.S. landholders, funded much of this genocide and war. And a big piece of that violence was the sense that people could just be disappeared. So they would be uplifted from their communities by military gangs. In some instances to this date, people still don't know what happened to their friends, families and community members. 
To bring us back to where we are here, I was looking at a, a few of the headlines that I could find. And one quite recently from October is that Guatemala's indigenous leaders are taking to the streets in nationwide protests. And we did touch very briefly on that. Why are indigenous leaders involved here? What are they doing? Why are they blocking the streets? One of the things that makes Guatemala, I think, a really interesting country for New Zealanders and people from Oteiroa is the fact that in a lot of Guatemala's departments, they have a dual governmental system like we do here, Mm -hmm. where there are Spanish or Latino alcaldes or mayors and then also indigenous alcaldes or mayors, particularly in the departments of Sololá and Tolonicapan, which are in the center of Guatemala. These community leaders, these mayors have been fundamental in helping bring pressure to the government to recognize and certify the election results from August 20th of 2023. And that has included um, rolling national strikes since October 1st of 2023. So I think it's now um, November 11th. So Mm -hmm. we're talking over 40 days of rolling national strikes. Much of this action has been peaceful. People have occupied the space in front of parliament and held that ground peacefully for over a month, placing this silent but constant pressure on the government simply to recognize the results of the election. So it's a very simple political demand. It's not complicated. What can you tell me about the 48 cantons? It's not an area of my expertise, but Mm -hmm. the 48 cantons are a group of community leaders from the center part of the central part of Guatemala. So the Mm -hmm. area around Sololá and Tolonicapan. And they're made up of community elders and leaders who've got a focus on community development, Mm -hmm. um, peace and education. And they are traditional ancestral community leaders who have their authority from their families and from their communities. Now, I wanted to go back to um, Guatemala, as I mentioned in the beginning, being one of the most dangerous countries in the world for land and environmental activists. And what I'd like to talk here is about something that came to my attention whilst initially discussing this with you, these mega projects, things like hydroelectric dams, things like mining. And what happens around that, why why that's important and how Indigenous people have been affected by that and how that then affects us all? I think the best example of this, and I, I'll send a link through for folks to look at in the show notes, mm-hmm. is there's a mine in the south of Guatemala called the Escobar Mine. And it's a big silver mine, and it's in Xinca territory. And um, Xinca communities have been resisting the Escobar Mine for decades now. One of the things that becomes really interesting with mines in Guatemala is we see an uptick in resource extraction, particularly mineral resource extraction, around technological demand in the West. Mm -hmm. So an increase in laptop and cell phone use saw an uptick in extraction. Many uh, environmental activists are anticipating an increase in electric cars and electric car batteries may see an uptick in these mining activities. And the Escobar mine is a a kind of a good case study of this because it's an instance in which the Guatemalan government claims to have engaged in community collaboration around getting permission to build the mine. The communities where the mine is being built say that they were never actually talked to about the mine. They have repeatedly brought protests to Guatemala City. 
And the mining company that owns the mine has sort of cycled ownership. So it's a Canadian company. I believe it's Goldcore right now, but they may have shifted ownership. But they'll declare bankruptcy or close the company and sell to a conglomeration of some of the original and some new shareholders to restart the process. So at the end of the day, even though it's the same mine and the same shareholders, you don't see the same entity holding responsibility for past actions. And there's a lot of impunity um, with the Escobar mine and mining security engaging in violent acts against land defenders and indigenous protesters, and then being able to simply leave the country and never be able to be brought to court or held to account for those acts of violence. And for those who don't know, mining directly, other than the hurt and harm to communities and to people's lives, mining also directly emits carbon, as does the associated mineral processing activities. So there are a lot of negative effects on biodiversity and those hugely extractive processes. With the Shinka mine in particular, there's a huge emphasis by the communities that have been working to resist this mining project on the local environmental impact and the shift in the ability for people to grow food on the land, the safety of the water where people are living and working, and also the change in local environment caused by the Escobar mine and other assorted mining projects. The Shinka people have also been involved with and aware of other mining projects, such as Marlin 1 and Marlin 2, in the Mom region um, of San Juan Austin Calco, above Shela. I could be wrong on San Juan Austin Calco, but it's one of the communities above Shela in the center of Guatemala. Part of this resistance is also communicating with and working with other small communities resisting mining projects. Hydroelectrics and, and dams, that has been, or, or these mega projects that we're talking about, have been talked about as the fourth invasion into Guatemala, with the first being the Spanish invasion and the colonialism coming in between. Can you speak any more on that? A little, a little bit. I'm not mm -hmm. as familiar with those movements as I am with those around mining. I do know that mm -hmm. the introduction of major hydroelectric projects in the north of Guatemala, usually to assist with water production around palm oil plantations, mm -hmm. has a significant impact on communities' ability to use water and on rolling water outages in parts of the Paten, the Alta Vedapaz, and the Baja Vedapaz, where water is being stored and maintained for use in, in kind of mega agribusiness, but not necessarily being redirected to communities. And this becomes particularly difficult in areas of the Paten where you see massive loss in biodiversity because there's huge amounts of logging to make way for monoculture. And palm oil is, is a crop that, while it has sort of a several decades long life, hugely reduces soil's ability to retain nutrients. And it becomes very, very difficult to reforest or recreate forest after after palm oil. But because it's a long life cycle crop, and this is to my understanding, I'm not a, a crop person, but it's mm -hmm. a longer life cycle crop than something like sugar. So you don't necessarily see the difficulty of reinstituting lost forest until it's been a little while. For anyone who's interested in knowing more about palm oil, not necessarily in Guatemala, but around other places in the world, we will link to Sophie Chow, an environmental anthropologist, to some of her work around the more than human aspects of palm oil and biodiversity loss. Now, one of the things I wanted to just touch on, what is happening now is that places like Guatemala are experiencing really sharp increases in the number of land and environmental defenders' murders. Can you speak to that at all? I know that one of the big pushes for having a more democratic government in place in Guatemala and the support for this election is that under Alejandro Giamete, who is the current Guatemalan president, there's been a really sharp increase in 
the violence and repression faced by uh, community leaders, particularly around environmental rights, gender rights. And this becomes really interesting kind of when you think about Guatemala's ongoing relationship to the United States. When we see a reduction of water available in communities, particularly with the climate change impacts of increased drought or increased flooding, we also see a huge uptick in the number of people who are being forced to leave their communities to find work either in the cities or particularly in the United States. In the last year, upwards of and I can't remember the exact figure, but it's the the sort of largest number of people who've come across the U.S. border seeking refugee status or work in recent history, if not ever, has been the last two years in large part because of environmental pressures. Under Jimmy Morales, who's not the current president, but the one before him at the, the Donald Trump administration signed what's called a third party agreement with mm. a third country agreement with Guatemala, saying that they would deport people who showed up at the U.S. border seeking refugee status back to Guatemala while their asylum claim was considered. And this gets really problematic when you know that many of the people who are showing up at the U.S. border asking for asylum are community leaders or environmental leaders from Guatemala or from Honduras or from El Salvador. So they're being basically sent back either to where they came from or very close to where they came from to wait to find out if they can immigrate. Which would be an incredibly dangerous situation to put someone in who's seeking refuge. If you're if you're seeking asylum because you're not safe in your country and you're sent back there, that that's really scary. Yeah, and it talks to this long-standing relationship between the U.S. U.S. land interests and U.S. money interests, and the close ties that the United States has had with the Guatemalan government before 1944. And then again, after the U.S. was involved in the overthrow of the Democratic government in 1956 onwards. So you see this really close tie between the U.S. and not just Guatemala, but many Central American governments really focused around U.S. interests. You also see similar ties with um, the Canadian government and mining interests. There's long ties between Guatemala and Germany around farming interests. So it's this kind of extractive process that rolls through different stages, but still sees land, water, resources, mineral resources flowing from places like Guatemala into the quote unquote global north at the cost at the environmental. I mean, there's a direct there's a direct environmental cost for all of us, but a very immediately felt cost in Guatemala. Do you have any final thoughts to leave us with today? I, I, w- I would love to see stronger connections between um, Otero in New Zealand and Guatemala. I think when Freddie's talking about the innovation and commitment to development and kind of building a better world that you see across Maya communities, I've had the privilege of working very closely in a handful of small communities for about 15 years and having a lot of good friends there. And I've learned a great deal about community and change from those people and those communities that I don't know I would have learned without those connections. And I think Guatemala has a lot to show the world about living in an incredibly diverse community with incredibly diverse societies working together towards common goals. And I think it's also, particularly right now, a chance with everything that's happening around the world and kind of what's not being covered in the news to have a look at the ongoing potential for political and social change, even in spaces where we're not paying attention. That's right. And as you said, the ability to work very closely together for common goals, such as climate change, preserving our our natural biodiversity, keeping the planet sustained for future generations and new and more equitable 
formations and spaces is, I think, a good goal to have. And to remember that there's a number of different knowledge system and ways of thinking about these problems. I think particularly in the West, particularly in the English speaking world, it's really easy to imagine and see the only way that we've let ourselves imagine and see. That's right. And that will hopefully one day form a whole podcast on its own. Well, thank you, Kelly, for joining us here today. You're listening to Sustain, a podcast hosted by Na'ara Fetu, the Center for Climate, Biodiversity and Society. Please take a look at the website, thebigq.org, for any show notes. And we look forward to seeing you on our next segments.